you, the Holy God Almighty Father. We live in a world desperately in need of that grace. We are a people desperately in need of that grace. And Father, thinking of faraway shores this morning, we want to continue praying for some of the most uh, difficult uh, nations in the world in which to live and certainly in which to be a Christian. I want to pray for the nation of Eritrea this morning in East Africa, a place that is dominated by a a very tight-fisted dictatorship uh, where people who actually come to faith in Christ are often uh, arrested, uh, which is very difficult for us to get our heads around, but that's reality for thousands of Christians on the other side of the globe, sometimes even imprisoned, and many stories coming out of that nation of being um, mistreated, locked in shipping containers, um, starved and uh, to death and dying of thirst. Father, that is a difficult place to be a Christian where people are fleeing by thousands and end up as refugees in other countries. We pray, Father God, for the incredible amounts of human suffering that take place within that, that the gospel would shine very clearly that you would strengthen and encourage um, Christian men and women in that nation to love their neighbors, to communicate and live the gospel, and to be passionately consumed with your grace such that if following you requires life, they would know that their life is not wasted. God, be their strength this morning. We pray that many people would come to faith in the gospel of grace and the gospel of Christ as a result of that this morning. Strengthen them and provide for them, we pray. Much closer to home, Father, our news feeds have certainly been full of the tragedies uh, flowing out of Las Vegas in the last uh, week in the wake of a horrible shooting there. And God, with all of the hurt and all of the pain, both for those directly affected and and closely connected to those directly affected, as well as the, the larger sense of insecurity and instability and questions that that makes us ask as a nation. Father, these things rock us to our core. We see evil, and yet we don't know whether or not we can call it evil or what to do about it. And there you are, Jesus, hanging on the cross, calling good, good, evil, evil, and showing us the way forward. I pray that through this church and through many other churches, especially the gospel Bible-believing churches in and around Las Vegas, of which there are many, that the gospel would be very clear in the midst of people being rocked out of our uh, stability and our sense of security by such a senseless act of evil. Jesus, you are the answer to the sin in the human heart. We pray that that would be clear and that millions of our fellow countrymen would come to find life by believing in you, not only now, but for all eternity. Father, we thank you for the work of churches, uh, not only places like Eritrea and Las Vegas, Nevada, but right here in town. I want to pray your special blessing this morning on uh, Calvary Chapel Beaverton as it starts as a new church Uh, for several years having existed as a satellite campus of uh, the Hillsborough Church, but uh, pray especially for Pastor Samuel this morning and the congregation there as they split off in a healthy way, a a birth being given, as it were, to a whole new church. What a joy, I pray, for their success in spreading the gospel in Beaverton and that they would establish an identity as an independent congregation of love and service to you and submission to your word and delight in the grace of the gospel. God bless them even as they gather this morning at this very time to worship you in their services. And Father, as we are here, lastly, we want to pray for your presence in our midst, in the midst of this church, God. I pray more than anything that um, as we seek to be a church that is living the gospel through um, our membership process and the commitments that we make to one another, 
um, with the introduction of, of a, a revised uh, version of our membership covenant. That's just beginning a process for months here for us as a church of talking that through and understanding whether that's important and why it's important. I pray that you would superintend that process and that as a church full of people, we would find this discussion over time um, raising up our thoughts, raising up perhaps even our fears or our anxieties or our misperceptions about what you've called us to as members of a church and that you would create a great unity amongst the members of this church, that we would buy in, not because we're being told to or we think we're supposed to, but because deep down inside we get it. We get what you're calling us to, and we want to respond to you as your people. So I pray that this would be one of many great catalysts that launch us into even deeper connection and community together, that other people would see the warmth and the passion that we have for you and be drawn into that and be welcome to your table. God, use this church for your glory. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, this month marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And last Sunday, we started talking about that. We actually launched a five-part sermon series that will take place for the five months of October. This is number two of five, and so if you happened to not be here last week, I would encourage you to get on our website uh, sometime this week at harvestcc.org. Uh, the audio recording of that sermon is available there because all five of these sermons go together. We kind of introduced the whole thing last week, and we're going to pick up uh, that process and continue it. Uh, normally, we preach straight from the Bible. We will do that again this morning, but this sermon series is just a little bit different because it's also anchored in some history, and so we're going to sprinkle just a little bit of church history into the sermons over these next few Sundays. Uh, they're still not really history lectures. They're Bible expositions, but the Reformation was so significant because it not only changed Western civilization forever, but it held a lot in terms of recovering a biblical understanding of the gospel and shaping the Christian faith as we understand it and practice it today. Whether you realize it or not, you are sitting in a church and many other churches in our community that were shaped by events that took place 500 years ago that got us back to what the Bible is saying. We want to look at that for these five Sundays. That's why we're doing this. We want to be clear about the essentials of what the Christian faith is. And many of us have been Christians for 30, 40, 50 plus years, and this will hopefully be clarifying and refreshing to re-anchor you in the essentials of your faith. And then we have people all across the spectrum to those that aren't even Christians yet here this morning. And if that's you, we are delighted that you are here with us. We hope that you'll stay with us for uh, the remainder of these Sundays in October because you will get a sense of what the Bible teaches about how to begin a relationship with God that will change your life and shape your eternal destiny. That's the message we hope that you hear this morning. Uh, the, the five sermons were, are sort of organized around the five rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation. There was a lot of change taking place back then, and there was a need from fairly early on to summarize what's this whole thing about. And the reformers answered that question with five uh, statements. They're really sort of five slogans. They became the rallying cries of the Reformation. And they are known, even still today, as the five solas, of the Reformation. Sola is, is the Latin language. It's just a word that means alone or one. Each one of these five statements has the word alone in it, uh, that our authority is by Scripture alone. We talked about that extensively last Sunday. These next three are really the heart of, the, of what was going on with the Reformation, and they're really the heart of the gospel, um, that we are justified by God 
justified before God by grace alone, that's what we're talking about this morning, through faith alone, which we'll talk about next Sunday, in Christ alone. Friends, if you get the, the, the essential message of these next three sermons, you will understand the heart of the Christian faith. That's how important this is. In some ways, these next two sermons are really two sides of the same coin. Uh, today, we're going to look at how a sinner can be saved sort of from God's perspective, as it were by grace alone. Next week, we're going to look at how a sinner is saved sort of from the sinner's perspective. It happens through faith alone. How do I get in on that? Uh, This morning is kind of how does salvation work? Uh, Next week will be how do I connect with that and get in on that? So that's kind of how these two go together. We are justified by God by grace through faith. And so this morning, we're starting with this idea of uh, what the reformers would have said, sola gratia, Latin for grace alone. We are justified by grace alone. What does that mean and why is it important? Frankly, it's hugely important. This is the very um, point that really started the Reformation in the first place because the guy who kicked it all off was a guy we talked about a little bit last Sunday, a German monk in the 16th century by the name of Martin Luther. Guy's got a whole denomination still named after him. He's a pretty important figure. And this business of grace alone is ultimately what changed Luther's life. Uh, He was a young um, priest. He was studying to become a theology professor. He was a monk back in the early 1500s. And he was racked with a sense of the guilt of his sin. I mean, he was just burdened down with the sinfulness of his life before a holy God. And so he threw himself with an uncommon zeal into doing everything that the church of his day taught him to do in order to be absolved from his sins. Uh, As one uh, historian put it, Luther plunged himself into prayer, into fasting, and even into ascetic practices, such as going without sleep, uh, enduring bitter cold without a blanket, and even flatulating himself, which is a fancy way of saying he would actually beat and harm his body. He would actually physically injure himself as a way to try to expunge the sinful lusts of his life out. As Luther himself later commented, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. But it didn't work. It didn't work. No matter how hard Luther tried, it didn't work. Yet this was the way to deal with sin according to the medieval church. At that time, God's grace, which is what we're going to talk about this morning, God's grace was sort of understood to almost be a a substance That's how they they talked about it and and taught about it. It was almost like your life is an empty cup and God's grace is like water that's supposed to get poured into that cup. And the more of God's grace that gets infused into your life, this was kind of the understanding back then, uh, the more of your sin would get cured by this grace of God and eventually you would become a more and more holy person to the point where God would finally say, you are sufficiently holy that you now get to come to heaven. That's kind of how it worked. A modern-day analogy might be sort of like uh, getting antibiotics through an IV. You know, if you've got a significant infection and you're hospitalized, they might hook you up to an IV in which they will put antibiotics, and that will get infused into your bloodstream through the, uh, the IV needles, and as those antibiotics circulate through your system, they kill the infection, right? And the more of that infection gets beat back, the more those antibiotics kill the infection, the less sick you become, the more healthy you become until eventually, hopefully, the infection is totally gone and you're restored to full health. That's kind of a parallel of how grace was understood. 
Grace was understood to be God's sort of almost mystical, supernatural power that infuses into your life and cures you of sin. Now, the IV in that case, how do you get God's grace into your life, was largely through the seven sacraments of the church, which is still a fairly common Catholic understanding today even. Back then, it certainly was. And they also had a high value on the monastic ascetic life. And so you get guys like Luther going even beyond the seven sacraments and also continuing to do some of these other things. These were all seen as ways to get the, the grace of God infused into your life so that your sin would be beat back and you could be holy enough one day to go to heaven. Here's, here's the key. This was sort of the bottom line. The basic idea was that first you become a more holy person by God's help. This is how a person is saved, justified before God. You become a more holy person by God's help. Then, eventually, when that process has gone on long enough, you will be accepted by God. For most people, they thought that process had to go on even beyond death, and so you'd go to purgatory where you would continue to get this sin worked out until eventually God says you're holy enough and you can come in. That was what Luther was taught, and so Luther got after it like nobody else, with unparalleled zeal. And yet, despite all of this, it didn't work. It didn't work, no matter how diligently he followed all the teachings of the medieval church, no matter how hard he threw himself into getting God's grace into his life, he knew that he was still a sinner. He knew the lust and the greed and the selfish ambition that was still residing deep within his heart. And he eventually despaired of ever being free of it. He knew he was guilty before a God who is perfectly holy. Can you relate? Many times, even as Christian people, we can understand that. How many times has this sin come up in my life and I've confessed it as a sin in prayer and I've asked God to forgive me for that sin and maybe I'm even convinced on the basis of the Bible that he has forgiven me and I pray that he would take it away but the sin just keeps coming up and keeps coming up and keeps coming up and we despair that we'll ever be free from it. Luther desperately studied the Bible seeking answers to this dilemma. He pondered, how does the Bible say a sinner can be freed from his or her sin? He landed in the New Testament book of Romans in particular, seeking to understand how God saves sinners. And chapter 1, verse 17 of Romans kind of lays out the whole main point of the entire book when it simply says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed... From faith to faith, or beginning and ending of faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, and Luther hit a brick wall when he read those words. He wrote very honestly later about how he hated verse 17 of Romans chapter 1. Because in his mind, he didn't understand it, and in his heart, he reacted violently against it. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From Luther's perspective, the righteousness of God is our problem. God is righteous, he's perfectly holy, and I as a human being am far from it. That's the problem I have. God's righteousness creates a standard that I could never hope to meet. That's what I need to be saved from, and I can't do it, and that's why God justly condemns sinners to hell. From the perspective of a sinful person, the righteousness of God is the problem. And yet here the Bible is calling the righteousness of God gospel, good news good news. Luther didn't understand it, and he hated it, and he wrestled with it for years, until one day Luther finally recognized the context of what that verse was saying, and he realized that the righteousness that the Bible was talking about there is that 
Not when you become holy enough that God finally says, I'll accept you. But it's when God takes his own righteousness, which is perfect, and he considers it as if it was yours, when it isn't. And at that point, God says, you are free to come be part of my family. It doesn't say that God makes people more holy, and that's how, he just, uh, that's how we're justified before him. It said that he declares them or considers them to be holy through faith. And at this point, Luther wrote, quote, Here I felt altogether born again, and that I had entered paradise itself through open gates. Once Martin Luther understood that we are justified by grace alone, it utterly transformed his life. It completely removed the shackles of the guilt and the shame he felt about his sin, and it launched him into a deep relationship with God that ultimately culminated in the entire Reformation movement itself. In short, Luther understood grace, and it changed everything. That's what we're talking about this morning. Salvation is by grace alone. That's what the Bible says. This is a counterintuitive and countercultural statement. It doesn't make sense. It's unexpected. It's surprising. And it's also not generally what a culture believes. It's not what people believed in Martin Luther's day 500 years ago. Frankly, it's not what people tend to believe today, even in 21st century America. Actually, a theologian Michael Horton says, uh, there was a popular medieval phrase back then, and it was this, God will not deny his grace to those who do what they can. That was the phrase that, that people tended to use back then to kind of summarize the teachings of the medieval church. God will not deny his grace to those who do what they can. It was kind of a, yeah, you need God's power and help to be saved. You can't do it all on your own, but you do have a part to play. You've got to get after the things that you need to get after. You've got to participate in the sacraments, and you've got to do these other things in order to receive that grace. It's kind of a God plus you cooperating together to make your salvation happen. That's what people thought back then. People still think that way very similarly today. Isn't it remarkable how similar this phrase is to another modern phrase? Fill it in for me, church. God helps those who? We know it. We've heard it a thousand times. The George Barna organization conducted a poll a number of years ago that indicated that even among church-going Christians, not just the average American, but people that are regular churchgoers, more than half of them thought that this was a direct quote from the Bible. It's not, but that's what we genuinely believe. There is something deep down inside of us that is offended by the, the idea of pure grace there's something within us that simply must play at least some little part in our relationship with god and in our own salvation often the way that plays out more broadly in a modern america is that uh, jesus is seen as a good example whom we should try hard to imitate um, the belief is that if we um, read or at least know about the things that are in the good book um, especially the, the popular teachings of Jesus, like, you know, turn the other cheek, um, love your enemies, serve the needy, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That is a direct quote from the Bible. We all like that one. If you do those things and you do them well enough, then hopefully by the time you die, I mean, that's good enough for God. You've, did, you've done your best and he'll accept you. Do you see how similar that is to the medieval understanding? So much has changed in 500 years, and yet so much has stayed the same. 
Here's the point. Luther and the Reformers realized that that's not as popular as it is what the Bible teaches. I want to show us that this morning by turning to Romans chapter 3, the passage Drath read for us earlier. If you've got your Bibles, um, either paper or digital, I encourage you to pull them out. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans is the uh, sixth book in the New Testament. If you're trying to find it, if you can find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, keep turning right through Acts, you'll find the book of Romans. We're starting in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. And I want to summarize the main flow of thought in this really dense, tightly packed paragraph. We're going to summarize the main idea in five simple points, a couple quick ones and one culminating one. First, as we look at Romans chapter 3, verse 21, we're going to go down to 26. That's one whole paragraph. Notice, first of all, the first observation is that the subject matter here is the righteousness of God, not of us as people. The Bible says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, that is made visible, apart from the law, apart from all the rules of, 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 of holy living. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Let's stop right there for a moment before we go any further. We are talking here about God's righteousness, not mankind's righteousness. The Bible begins the discussion of like, how do we relate with God by saying, you need to understand God's righteousness is the key to a relationship with him. Now, sometimes that's as confusing for us as it was for Martin Luther. I don't want to talk about God's righteousness. That's scary. I want to talk about how God will come to accept me. The Bible says, if you want to know that, you've got to start with the righteousness of God. This is already a very different focus than the most common way of thinking about God in modern American society, and it is important to be clear about that. Our tendency in modern culture is to think of self-improvement first and foremost. How can I be a better person? How can maybe God even help me be a better person? How can I do my best to follow God's teaching so that I will be a better person? It's all about me and my righteousness. The Bible has a completely different category. The first thing to understand is the shock of realizing we're not talking about my righteousness at all. We're talking about God's. Why is that? That's our second point. It goes on in verse 23. Because our righteousness, our efforts, can never, are never, will never, could never be enough. Verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Everybody the murderers and the rapists and the thieves, sure. But also the pastors and the priests and the theology professors and the rabbis and the popes and everybody in between. All means all. <laughs> Every human being, the Bible says, has fallen short of God's glory. In fact, if you back up to verse 20, just one sentence before this paragraph, it says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. There aren't enough rules you can follow, in other words. There isn't enough good stuff we could do. There isn't a long enough list of good accomplishments that I could achieve or you could achieve that would ever result in us being good enough for God. It doesn't work. Our righteousness doesn't work, so that's why we're not talking about it. That's how this passage starts. We're talking about God's righteousness, not ours, because ours will never be enough. Now, this is where it gets surprising, because so far this sounds depressing. <laughs> where, where Martin Luther was, wait a minute, God's righteousness is the problem I can never measure up. That, that's, that's not good news. Actually, it's not by itself. But this is where the Bible gets good, and this is sort of the main point right here. Justification takes place by God's grace alone. Look at verse 24. 
all have sinned and fall short of God's glory and are justified by his grace as a gift. That's how it works. Through the specific, there's one specific way, the redemption that is available in Christ Jesus. This is shocking. We can be justified by God's grace alone. Now, to understand what is being said here, because this is so essential to understand if we're going to understand biblical Christianity. We've got to learn a couple of words. I've already tossed around this word justified or justification a couple of times. What does that mean? It very simply means to declare someone not guilty or to declare them innocent. It was actually a word uh, back in the first century when the Apostle Paul originally wrote these words. This was the word they would use in uh, legal proceedings, in a court. You know, you sort of think of a modern courtroom, right? All the arguments have been made, all the evidence has been presented, uh, the jury's gone off and done all of its deliberations, and they file back, and it's the moment of truth, right? I mean, the judge comes up and takes his or her seat at the, at the, at the, the bench, and everybody, you know, the defendant rises, and the Mr. Jury Foreman, do you have a verdict? Yes, Your Honor, we do. What is it? <gasps> the big dramatic moment in the TV show, right? <laughs> This is it. What's it going to be? There's nothing else to be said. There's nothing else to be done. There's now simply the announcement of a verdict. And which verdict gets announced will radically alter the life of the defendant. If the verdict is not guilty, they get to go free. If the verdict is guilty, they must pay the penalty of the law. That's justified. When the jury foreman says, not guilty, and the defendant goes, oh yes, I'm free. I don't have to suffer prison. I don't have to suffer the fine or whatever the penalty is. I'm freed from that because I have been declared innocent in the eyes of the law, not a violator of the law. That's what justified means. So the Bible is saying that God declares a sinner not guilty. And because of that, the sinner does not have to face the consequences of his or her sin, which is eternity apart from God in hell. That's what justification means. We are justified, it says, by his grace as a gift. What is grace? Grace in this context is simply when God treats us far better than we deserve to be treated. It's the easiest kind of man on the street definition I've ever heard. When God treats us far better than we deserve to be treated. Notice that that's not a substance. It's a very different idea than what the church was teaching 500 years ago. It's not a a, a spiritual power of God that gets infused into your life. That's not the kind of grace that's being talked about here. Grace is simply an attitude. It's, It's a disposition. It's how God chooses to react and respond to us as people. If God is absolutely just and gives us exactly what we deserve, then we spend eternity in hell because that's what we deserve and God has done nothing wrong. That's one option. The other option is God treats us far better than we deserve. And when, the, when he does that, the Bible calls that grace. Simply treating us better than we deserve. Grace is not a perfunctory prayer before dinner time. Grace is not a mystical substance of God that is infused into our lives. Grace is a way of describing the heart attitude of a loving God toward people who don't deserve his love, but he gives it to them anyway. So, we are declared not guilty by his grace. A person is accepted by God, justified before him, simply because he chooses to be gracious to them. Notice, by the way, they are still a sinner. And this was the shock. Uh, Martin Luther coined a phrase 500 years ago that's still running around today in theological circles. And it was written in Latin, of course, but I'll do the English because I don't know Latin. (laughs) The phrase is, simultaneously righteous yet 
a sinner. Simultaneously justified or righteous, yet a sinner. That's the reality of justification according to the Bible. God declares me not guilty when I am, in fact, guilty. I'm a sinner. But God treats me as if I'm not, and so I go free. That's grace. That is the heart of the gospel. We must understand that if we're to understand Christianity as the Bible presents it. Now, that raises the obvious question. How in the world could God do that? That, that doesn't seem right. That, that's, just, that's just off. And that's uh, still a hang-up many people have with the biblical gospel today. That just doesn't seem right. God is saying that I'm not guilty when I am guilty. That's just, he's, then he's wrong. I mean, if God takes a sinner and treats him as if he's not a sinner, then God either doesn't know about that person's sin or he doesn't care. And either way, he's not God. So how could that be possible? There are many people that just get hung up on that and can't get past it. Frankly, there were many people that got hung up on that 500 years ago and couldn't get past it. That was one of the chief arguments that Luther's theological opponents used against him in debates during the Reformation. You're making God to be less than God. Luther's like, no, I'm preaching the Bible and just saying what God said. But how could God declare a sinner not a sinner and still be God? It doesn't make any sense. But you know what? That objection goes back farther than 500 years. That objection has been around ever since the gospel was preached and the apostle Paul dealt with it in the first century. That's our final two points as he finishes out this paragraph. He realizes what he just said shocks the sensibilities. How could God do that? And so he explains it, our fourth observation. In verses 24 and 25, the person is justified through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. One more big word there. This is made possible because of Christ's death on the cross. However this thing works, it all centers on Jesus dying on the cross. That's what makes the whole thing go. So the Bible now explains to us how that works. It says that when Jesus went to the cross, he was a propitiation. Big, complicated, funny-sounding word. Here's what it means. A sacrifice that turns away wrath and judgment. That, that's what the word means. A propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of a judge. That's the idea. And so what the Bible is saying is that when Jesus Christ went to the cross to die, he hung there bleeding and suffocating to death in our place, your place and my place. He was paying the penalty of my sin for me, and therefore that turns away God's wrath, God's judgment of my sin. I no longer have to face that because Christ steps in front, as it were, and takes that bullet for me. Therefore, I don't have to take it. That's how God is able to declare the sinner not guilty. And again, we see how different this is than the way people often think about how we relate to God. We talked about that self-help gospel, that modern-day idea that if I follow Jesus' example enough, then when I die, God will let me into heaven because I tried hard and I had some success. Well, there's a lot of people in churches that, that kind of take that up a notch and they do it one better. We come to church long enough, we read the Bible long enough, we see verses like verse 23, we just looked at a minute ago, and we realize I could never be good enough. I understand that. I accept that. And so Christianity then becomes my way of leaning on God's help to help me be good enough, which I fully admit I couldn't do on my own, but I can do with God's help. 
And so I pray, and I read the Bible, and I come to church, and I do all the things that, that, that the Bible tells me I'm supposed to do as a way of getting God's power in my life to help me live more for Him in the hope that at that point I will achieve His acceptance. It's sort of the same self-help gospel with a little bit of turbocharged Jesus on top of it, right? But the problem is, the Bible never says you can't do it on your own, therefore you need God's help. And if you turbocharge your life with a little Jesus juice, you'll get over the hump. That's not what it says. It says Jesus is not just an example that we are to follow. It says that he is not just the one who comes alongside and helps pull us over the hill to follow that example. It says he is our propitiation. (laughs) He is the sacrifice who takes the penalty of our sin for us. That's how this works from God's perspective. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, talks about how um, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him, we, sinners, might become the righteousness of God. One more big word since we're on such a roll this morning. On the basis of that verse, theologians will talk about imputation of Christ's righteousness. They say Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Now, why do they use big words like that? Well, partly because they're theologians and scholars. But partly to be clear, remember what we said earlier about God's grace, how some people thought it gets infused into your life? They said, no, 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 this is not anything getting infused into us. This is the righteousness of Jesus getting imputed to us. Basically, that means it's like it's a credit. Here's my account, and I have a big debt, and Jesus comes along and pays it for me, so I now consider the account is paid. His payment gets credited to my account. Theologians call that imputed. The righteousness of Jesus is considered as if it was mine, and the penalty I had to pay is considered as if it was his, and he pays it on the cross. The fancy word for that is double imputation. Christ gets my sin penalty. I get the benefits of his righteousness. This, the Bible says, is how a sinner gets justified before God, and it is all by grace. That's not infusing anything into my life. That's taking me as a guilty sinner and having God treat me far better than I deserve, far better than I could ever dream. A holy God would treat a sinner like me. That's the good news of the Bible. That's the gospel. And that leads us to our last observation in this passage. As a result of that, God is perfectly just. He hasn't done anything wrong when he says not guilty to a sinner who is guilty verse 25 picks up. We kind of left off in the middle. This was to show God's righteousness. In other words, God is not unjust. God is not less than God. He is still perfectly just in this because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus that God can say not guilty to a guilty sinner and still not be accused of doing anything unjust. Why? Because every sin is seen and understood by God. Every sin is paid for. Every sin is dealt with. God ignores nothing. Not even the tiniest little sin goes without being punished. He is perfectly just. But in his grace, it is not the sinner who pays that price. It is the substitutionary sacrifice. It is Jesus himself. And this actually isn't as weird as it might initially sound. We see this kind of thing happen all the time. Uh, Real quick example, it just hit our own family recently. Um, 
That was kind of a funny way to put it. Uh, because not long ago, somebody hit my daughter's car. Uh, <laughs> she's off at college, and um, thankfully, it seems like everybody's okay, nobody's hurt, but there was body damage to the car. It was all the other driver's fault, completely 100%. And so this other driver is now in our debt, right? He's caused property damage to um, our vehicle. And so uh, eventually, when the insurance companies go through their process, uh, just yesterday in the mail, I get a check that is enough money to pay for fixing the damage. Now, where did that check come from? Did it come from the other driver? Came from his insurance company. Thankfully, he was legally insured. <laughs> it came from his insurance company. But now, who among us would say, well, wait a minute, that guy's the one that did the damage, and he didn't pay for it. Like, the cash didn't come out of his pocket. So, so he, that's not right. You've got to still go after that guy. It's like, no, there was a debt, and it was paid. And we understand, and the way insurance works in our economy, like that's, that's what it's for. The insurance company essentially steps in and pays his debt for him because he is their client. And the debt's now paid. It's done. That's an imperfect analogy. All analogies break down. But that's kind of like what goes on when a sinner comes to faith in Christ. I've got a debt I could never pay, but Jesus steps in and he cuts the check because he's got enough righteousness to do it. And because he pays for my sin, God looks at me and says, your debt's paid, you're clean, you're good to go. And therefore I am justified, though a sinner. It's all grace. Let's pull this back, kind of line this plane up to land it. <laughs> if you catch nothing else from this morning, this is really the essence of what this all boils down to. We are declared to be righteous by God before we are actually made righteous by God. There is a sequence there. The word before is the critical word. There's a sequence, and the order of those events is essential to preserve an understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. The key difference Luther was calling out 500 years ago, was one of order. Uh, the theologians would say our justification comes before our sanctification. We are declared to be in right relationship with God before we actually become a more holy people. Yes, it is true. At that point, the Holy Spirit moves into my life once I repent of my sins and acknowledge before God that I need him and receive his free gift of salvation, and I am justified. And after that, the Holy Spirit enters my life, and God empowers me to live more righteously for him. But that's not what leads to justification. Justification leads to that. You see, the order is essential. This is completely backwards from how the medieval church taught it. The righteousness of God comes into your life. The grace of God helps make you more righteous and then you are justified in his sight. The reformers opened up the Bible and said, that's not what it says. It says the opposite. You are declared righteous even when you're a sinner and have nothing to bring to the table. And then, by God's grace, he moves into our lives and makes us more holy. The order is essential. If you get that order right, it will fuel your discipleship and it will lead you to eternal salvation. If you get that order wrong, you will always be empty and frustrated in your spiritual journey. And when you die and stand before God, you will be shocked to realize that no matter how hard you tried, you missed the whole point. Friends, the reason we're going through all of this is because, first of all, it's taught in the Bible. And secondly, because our heart as a church is that every one of us would understand this clearly because the Bible goes to such great lengths and pains to make it clear. 
So we want you to know the gospel and be able to respond to the gospel. How does this affect us? Let me close with a couple of thoughts. First, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't even identify yourself as a Christian, church is maybe not something that's been a, a regular part of your life, a relationship with God is something that maybe you've thought of sort of from a distance, but it, it doesn't have any direct bearing on your daily life, or maybe you're just going to say, I've never really thought about God at all. Our desire is that you would know the Bible's message is that to you is that you, like all people, are invited to God's table. God says, you're apart from me. Your determination to live apart from me is going to cut you off from me for all eternity, and I've died to make sure that that doesn't have to happen to you, but you need to come and receive that gift. How do you do that? Very simply, by grace. A relationship with God begins when a person understands what we've just explained, agrees with it, and then prays perhaps their first prayer or perhaps their millionth prayer to God, but prays a prayer in which we simply say, God, I admit that you are right about me. I'm a sinner, and no matter how good I am, there, I could never be good enough. I will never make it to heaven on my own. I accept that, and I'm starting from a place of being totally devastated and bringing nothing to the table. But I recognize that you are full of grace toward me that you came to this earth as a man, Jesus Christ, and that man went and died on a cross in my place to pay my penalty that I could never pay on my own. And I accept that gift. Please forgive my sins, not because of me, but because of Jesus. And take me and make me your son, your daughter, your servant forever. You pray a prayer like that, if that's what you really believe, God will justify you on the spot because that's how salvation works. If you've never prayed a prayer like that, whether this is your first time in church for years, or maybe if you've been coming to churches like Harvest, or maybe this very church for months or even years, and you say, I love God, and I love learning about the Bible, and I love learning about prayer, and I love this place, and I love the people, but I've never prayed a prayer like that to God. We want to encourage you to do that. If you know another Christian in this church, a friend, a family member, if you want to talk to one of our pastors or elders, we encourage you to do that. Uh, several of us will be up front afterwards. We'd love to strike up a conversation with you to help you begin a relationship with God based on grace, not on our efforts. But you know, this continues. The, the reality of grace continues to shape our relationship with God even after we've come to faith in Christ. You think of your besetting sins. You know, those irritating ones that seem to never go away. Oh, sure, Christians continue to sin, and there's some sins where I'm like, that was just a bad call, that was dumb, I confess that God, that was wrong, and I pick up, and, and it largely doesn't really happen again. But then there's those other sins, those ones that just seem habitual, my chronic anger, my pornography addiction, my whatever it is, the, the disdain that I have in my heart toward another person that just won't go away no matter how much I pray. Oftentimes, what happens at those moments is we get covered, like Martin Luther was, with guilt and with shame. Why is this sin still here? We get frustrated, we get angry, we get depressed, we despair. But you see, at that moment, what I'm saying is, I don't measure up, I'm guilty before God and I know it. And we will typically either determine to do better next time, or perhaps we will simply beg God for his help to become a less guilty kind of person, or both. But either way, we're trying to become somebody who eventually will deserve God's love at least a little bit more than we do today. 
but that's starting with our sanctification. That's getting the order wrong. And it causes us to pull back from God because a relationship with God is based on grace. Isn't that crazy? The very efforts you exert to get closer to God can sometimes drive you further away from God if we don't do it the way he's laid it out, if we do it on our strength, not his. Grace allows you to confess your sin from your place in your seat at the Father's table. You see, I'm, I'm already accepted. That cannot change. It never will change. I was never accepted because of what I brought to the table, so I'll never be kicked out because of what I bring to the table. I'm not outside in the cold hoping and praying that someday I'll be worthy for God to open up the door and let me in and treat me as part of his family. I am there at the table as a treasured son or daughter. And now I'm saying to my father, I got to be real with you. I'm still sinning. Thank you for your grace. Please take this away. It makes all the difference in the world. But it's hard to do. It's counterintuitive. It's surprising. It's not natural. I want to wrap this up this morning in a, a little bit of a different way than I normally would because just this week, um, my wife stumbled across a great poem that was written um, by a, a man about 400 years ago, actually during the height of the Reformation. It's one generation behind Martin Luther, a guy by the name of George Herbert. And it's a poem about the grace of God and the difficulty that we sometimes have accepting it. I'm not normally a huge poetry guy, but when she read this to me, we were both just stunned how well this fit with Romans 3 and what we were talking about this morning. And it's a short three-stanza poem. I want to read it to you. In this poem, uh, God is personified as love, capital L. And it's about his invitation to us to come in and the struggle we have because we know we don't deserve it and we want to deserve it. The poem is called Love 3 because apparently Herbert wrote three poems about love and he creatively titled them Love 1, Love 2, and <laughs> Love 3. This is Love 3. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I needed anything, if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, ah, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. Know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. No, you must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. How hard we fight 
against the beauty of God's grace. And yet he says, come, be justified, sinner, because of what I've done for you. And enjoy your welcome spot at the table. We are going to receive communion now, as we do uh, twice a month. And it seems appropriate to enter into communion with a poem about coming to God's table because when Jesus instituted communion, he told us to do this on a regular basis because it's an image and a symbol of being part of his family, being around the table. Except what we are eating, what we are drinking, what allows us to be part of God's family are elements that symbolize his broken body and his shed blood on the cross. It's important to remember that contrary to the teachings of the medieval church, when you receive communion, there is no transfusion of divine sanctifying grace into your life. That is not what scripture teaches. What is happening is that we are coming together as a church physically and tangibly to eat and to drink and to remember that we are taking the body and the blood of Christ into our lives just as we take this uh, piece of bread and this cup into our stomachs. It represents, it symbolizes, it reminds, it teaches us that we have nothing except what Christ has done for us. Friends, if you've not yet begun a relationship with Jesus Christ, in a few moments, uh, the ushers will come forward and distribute these elements, and I want to encourage you to just let them pass by and not partake in communion, uh, which is totally fine. We are completely comfortable with that here, and we want you to be as well. Nobody's really looking around at who's doing what anyway. That's not the point of this. But when you receive communion, the Bible says you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, if you receive communion, you're saying, I'm a Christian and I'm depending on the blood of Jesus to cleanse my sins. If that's not a decision you've made yet, then you won't want to participate in this, which is totally fine. That said, if you are a Christian this morning, if you have embraced the salvation that is available in Jesus, I want to encourage you not to just partake in communion, but partake understanding that you have a seat at the Father's table and it had nothing to do with you. Praise God for that. That's why we're there. And from this point, we can move on and let him sanctify us and change us and use us for his glory, but it all starts with grace. I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward now. I'm gonna pray for us, and as soon as I finish praying, the ushers are gonna distribute the bread. Go ahead and just take a piece of it and hold on to it uh, until everybody has received and then we'll partake together. While the bread is going around, the piano music's gonna be playing softly in the background. There's gonna be a couple of minutes where things are just kind of quiet, and I wanna encourage you to use this time to reflect, to pray, to read scripture, and to let God bring you to a place of recognizing, I'm about to partake in communion, which is all about the grace of God, and my relationship with God begins and ends with grace. Father, thank you so much for the grace to call you Father. And I pray that you would draw the hearts of every man and woman in this room to yourself because there is nothing as amazing as the gospel of grace. And we thank you for it. Receive our gratitude now as we receive the elements of communion representing the gift, the tremendous gift you've given us of your body and blood on the cross. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.